Well, this morning we are we're, we're tr- trying to get on the road to finishing this class. We've kind of started and stopped a number of times. So we have three weeks, Lord willing, left this morning and then the next two weeks. Uh, soon I we're gone away for two Sundays. So last time we discussed the Yale commencement of 1741. Uh, in the midst of the Great Awakening. And we talked about the convergence of three uh, events or three people. There was Jonathan Edwards who gave the commencement speech. There was uh, uh, James Davenport whose excesses we, we looked into. And then there was, we noted simply the presence of David Brainerd in the midst of it. Well, David Brainerd is our subject this morning. We want to follow his career to the end, which was a very brief career. Uh, he died of tuberculosis at only 29 years old, but he's one of the great figures in the Great Awakening and in church history in general. He's, he's just a fabulous uh, figure, a star, you might say, as has been said of others, a star of the first magnitude in the church, really quite, a, I mean, he, he arrested Edwards' own attention. And Edwards has much to say about him, who, who knew him intimately. And in fact, Brainerd died in Edwards' home, spent the last four or five months of his fading life in the Edwards' home. So those two men, the elder and the younger, uh, had very, very deep fellowship right at the end of Brainerd's life. Well, there's a passage in Second Corinthians, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, that reminds me very much of Brainerd's ironic situation as a, as a minister of the gospel in the midst of dying himself uh, and yet so much new life from the gospel and from the labors of the Holy Spirit in Brainerd's ministry. Uh, there's just that, that juxtaposition of, of death in the minister and life in those that he's ministering to. And Paul describes that in 2 Corinthians 4. So with Brainerd in mind, uh, th- this describes all Christians uh, to a greater or lesser degree. In principle, this is the Christian life, but it particularly applies, as Paul does, as he writes it, to the ministers of the gospel, uh, under which category Brainerd comes. So let's just read a few verses here. Paul says in Second Corinthians 4, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, Death worketh in us, but life in you. Amen. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we thank you for these words, and we thank you for your mercy to us in the gospel, us who are in every way undeserving, and who, if you're gracious to us throughout our Christian life, we realize this more and more. Help us to be eager to decrease, and to see you increase, and to be taken up with the glory of your wisdom and goodness and power and righteousness. Uh, Even as we see a little bit of that in these men that we've studied and particularly in in David Brainerd this morning. 
be with us this hour. And, of course, we're always thinking about the hour to come as well and the fellowship that you call us to in the gospel and in your ordinances. We thank you, Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the Yale commencement last time, uh, James Davenport's excesses that, if you remember Thomas Prince's comment right at the end of the hour last time, how Prince had said about, about Davenport's excesses, uh, his judging ministers to be unconverted and openly denouncing them from their own pulpits even, if you recall that, uh, was, it, was, it was quite the unusual circumstances. Prince said that that, that whole episode, even after Davenport repented uh, and really came back to a certain amount of sound mind, if you will, uh, Prince said the damage had already been done. I mean, the apology really didn't matter in terms of the effect, the deleterious effect that it had on the church. He said that it had roiled the passions on all sides so that the Holy Spirit in a gradual and dreadful measure withdrew his influence. And that really... Uh, by 1743 or so, the uh, the work of the Spirit that had been so publicly uh, evidenced and experienced by so many ministers of the gospel and in so many congregations, uh, not only just in New England but all the way through the South, which we'll get to next week. We're going to look at this next week. Some of some of the work of the gospel in the South, uh, because of Davenport. If we, could, if we could point to a single person, which you, you can't really, history is very complex, but Davenport is kind of the figurehead of the excesses that ended up dividing the church and, and causing them to take more drastic sides. There was a subtle preference uh, between the new lights and the old lights earlier on, but Davenport really, really... Uh, made a separation and a division there so that now there was this almost a political antagonism between two sides within the evangelical church, the Presbyterian church and the Congregationalists. We have good reason to look more at the Presbyterians this week and in the next week. Uh, It was under their auspices that Princeton University or the College of New Jersey as it was called at first was brought to the birth. We're going to look at that this morning uh, along with Brainerd. Those are our two two major interests this morning. So Brainerd, uh, there he was at the commencement. Davenport was there. Brainerd was deeply influenced by Davenport, unfortunately. Brainerd's one of our heroes, uh, but in his young years, and he really died before he got out of his young years. As I said, he died when he was 29, but, but now at the time of the Yale commencement, he was only about 23 years old, somewhere around there. And he was deeply influenced by Davenport. Edwards himself said that that at this time Brainerd had a tincture, a tincture of that intemperate, indiscreet zeal that at that time was too prevalent. So Edwards puts it rather moderately uh, as he put many things that he said. Well, Brainerd's intemperate zeal brings us back to that rule, if you remember, from the rector of Yale, Thomas Clapp. He had laid down this rule in the midst of all of the dissension that was going on, all of the denouncing of ministers. Uh, If any student, said Clapp, if any student shall say that the rector, the trustees, or the tutors are hypocrites, carnal, or unconverted, he shall for the first offense make a public confession in the hall, and for the second offense be expelled. 
Well, that's exactly what Brainerd did the winter following the September 1741 commencement. That winter following, there had been a prayer meeting in one of the college rooms. Brainerd was there. It was being led by one of the tutors who Brainerd considered to be one of these carnal hypocrites. Uh, he, was an old, he was an old light man, and so he was against the revivals that were going on, as, as Clapp himself was. Well, Brainerd, after, after the meeting was over, and after the tutor, whose name was Chauncey Whittlesey, uh, it's a great old name, uh, it's fun to say, I'm going to say it again, Chauncey Whittlesey, uh, he, as I said, was an old light, and uh, Brainerd was asked by one of his fellow students after Whittlesey left the room what Brainerd thought of him. Brainerd was leaning against a chair like this, and he said he has no more grace than this chair. Well, he said it in private to one other single student, but there was another a freshman student that was walking by the hall at the time, through the hall, by the room, overheard it, and eventually word got back to Rector Clapp. And so without further ado, uh, Brainerd was expelled. And so now his ministerial hopes, were that was his great hope, was to become a minister of the gospel. Uh, that's why he was there at Yale. Uh, now they, they were just dashed. He, had, he really had no visible route that he could see into the ministry now. He was shut out. So he applied to the New York Presbytery. There was the, the, in the Presbyterian Church, there was one synod at this time, the Philadelphia Synod. That was the original synod. It was the only one. It encompassed the whole Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, in this geographical area that we're speaking of, there were three primary presbyteries. There was the Philadelphia Presbytery, there was the New Brunswick Presbytery, of which the, old, the, the Long College men were a part of, Tennant, Yit, uh, Blair, and others. And then there was the New York Presbytery. That was composed of what we would call moderates that were somewhere between the old, the old side uh, Philadelphia Presbytery and the new side uh, New Brunswick Presbytery. The New Yorks were more moderate. They were definitely pro-revival, but they took a decided stand against some of the excesses that the New Brunswick or Law College men would have actually been a part of. So you have these three kind of, of sides, the extremes and then the moderates. So Brainerd applied to the New York Presbytery to come under their care at this time after he was expelled from Yale. He moved in with a new light minister and began training less formally. It wasn't in a college setting, but it was in the home of a man named Jedediah Mills, who was a very warm friend of Edwards and Whitfield and the tenants. Uh, so he was, he was strong, strong new side. Well, it was here. He was here for most of the year 1742. And uh, during this time, he, he, he was educated very well under the tutorship of, of Jedediah Mills. Uh, he recovered from Davenport's influence. He went, he made a formal apology to uh, Rector Clapp, which was not accepted by Clapp. Uh, Brainerd says this about himself. He says, it, it cuts and wounds my heart to think how much self-exaltation and spiritual pride I have mixed with my endeavors to promote God's work. Mixed with my endeavors to promote God's work. That's, I think we, we all know something of that. If ever I get to heaven, it will be because God wills it and nothing else, for I never did anything of myself but get away from God. I think that's a remarkable quote. I never did anything of myself but get away from God. It's very Augustinian. Augustine made very many comments 
Very similar to that. There's, no, there's nothing of my own but sin. I think it was Augustine uh, that said that. Well, so now we're at the end of 1742, after Brainerd had been there at the Mills residence most of the year. He received a letter. Brainerd received a letter from Ebenezer Pemberton, another great name. You may remember Pemberton was the minister of the Presbyterian Church in New York City that had Whitfield and Tennant come and preach. Several weeks back, we, we looked at that when they came, and, and Pemberton was there, a very warm friend of the New Siders, of Tennant and Whitfield and so forth. Well, the letter was an invitation because Pemberton was not only the minister of, of, of the church there in New York City, but he was on the board of American commissioners for the Society in Scotland for the Propagation of the Gospel. So it was a Scottish mission board, uh, but they had an American department. And Pemberton was actually the president of that American board, along with some other men that worked by his side in the New York Presbytery. We're going to see them in just a moment. Well, the letter was an invitation to Brainerd to consider work uh, among the Indians that were there in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, New York, in the wilderness. So, of course, we're talking 1740, so there was very much wilderness in this area at the time. Well, my mind says Brainerd was instantly seized with this prospect. The, the moment he heard it, uh, he, he felt a calling for the work. So he made the journey to New York, was examined uh, by, for his fitness for the ministry there among the Indians by Pemberton and two other men. In order, says Brainerd, in order to the important affair of gospelizing the heathen. Gospelizing the heathen. Well, the two others were both also Presbyterian ministers uh, in this New York Presbytery. And they were actually, they were to become in just a very few short years the first two presidents of Princeton or the College of New Jersey. So major, major figures. Uh, Jonathan Dickinson, 55 years old at the time. He was, he was, if not the, certainly one of the elder statesmen of the entire Presbyterian Church in America. Certainly one of the leaders in the, in the, in the Synod. No doubt about it. He was of Elizabethtown, New Jersey. It was called Elizabethtown then. Today it's Elizabeth. You can go there today. It's a big city now. Uh, it wasn't then. And then his compatriot, Jonathan Dickinson's peer, was uh, a man only half his age, 27 years old, and that's Aaron Burr. Not to be mistaken with Aaron Burr, his son, who is the famous third vice president of the United States who killed Alexander Hamilton in the duel, which uh, I'm sure you're familiar with. This was his father, Aaron Burr, who would actually go on to marry the eldest daughter of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. And so Aaron Burr Jr., the infamous Aaron Burr, turns out to be the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. So there's all kinds of family connections going on here. So Jonathan Dickinson, Aaron Burr, they were the first two presidents of Princeton. And, and incidentally, the third was Jonathan Edwards. So we'll, we'll get to that uh, on the final week. So first, Dickinson... Uh, it was said that besides Edwards, there was no greater defender of experimental Calvinism in all the colonies at this time. Dickinson was a giant, a theological and a pastoral giant, a most solemn, mighty, and again, I, I'm, I'm reading this quote from a contemporary minister at the time, a most solemn, mighty, and moving preacher, industrious, indefatigable. His aspect was grave and solemn so that the wicked seemed to tremble 
in his presence. And then secondly, Burr, who, you remember Jonathan Parsons, who had been a minister and an Arminian, uh, and then was converted out of his Arminianism, and his whole ministry changed. Well, Burr was very similar, although he had not been a minister yet. He was a student, a young student at Yale, and was a strong, had a strong bent towards Arminianism until, says Burr, but then I was brought to the footstool of sovereign grace and made to despair of help in myself. Well, he's one of the men that, that I refer to other as being called a star of the first magnitude. Uh, the man who preached his funeral sermon called him this. He said he was a star of the first magnitude, a wise master builder in the house of God. He had a rich fund of divine knowledge with surpassing quickness, a heart uncommonly warm in the cause of God. He could speak freely with such simplicity as a child might understand, which was important because he, he had long been a teacher of young boys, preparing them for the ministry. So, I mean, you know, you're talking 14, 15, 16-year-old boys turning into young men preparing for the ministry. That was Burr and Dickinson's both. Uh, their specialty, as it were, even though they were pastors of churches, they, they really concentrated on raising up young men for the gospel ministry. Uh, so he could speak with such simplicity as a child might understand, or with an elegance that would please the politest ear, that is the most advanced, the most, the most sophisticated ear. So he was very versatile in his ministry of the gospel. So Dickinson, Burr, and Pemberton, these three men sat there uh, with Brainerd interviewing him, and they were very satisfied with his fitness for the ministry. Uh, Brainerd, for his part, said how miserably disappointed they would be if they knew my inside. And that's one thing, if you read anything of Brainerd, you'll, you'll, you'll immediately be struck uh, almost violently with his, his excessive introspection. His excessive introspection. He was constantly searching his heart and, and dredging up sins that were there. Unfitness for the ministry, unfitness for service. To God, or even acceptance into heaven. Uh, really a remarkable example uh, of this we have in Brainerd. Some people don't like that. It's a little too depressing. Uh, others are extremely ministered to in the soul by reading Brainerd. So um, you can see for yourself, if you haven't read Brainerd, I, I warmly recommend reading his diary and journal. Well, he was commissioned by these three men. He arrived at Conomeek, Conomeek in upstate New York on April 1st, 1743. Uh, so 1743, he begins his ministry among the Indians. He's, he, he would die in 1747. So you see, we're, only, we're working with a four-year window of time here. He was 24 years old, almost 25 at this point. He says, and this is where his life just took a dramatic turn and a change. Now I live, he says, he wrote this to his brother. I live in a lonely, melancholy desert, 18 miles from Albany. Well, if you go to Albany today, travel 18 miles in any direction, obviously there's no, no um, lonely, melancholy desert. But there was at the time. This was, you, you're, you're, he's on the frontier. My diet, he said, was mostly boiled corn, bread baked in ashes, my lodging is a little heap of straw laid upon some boards. So there he is all by himself in the wilderness uh, seeking to preach the gospel to Indians in Conomeek. 
New York. His private diary, he records on April 10th, rose early and spent considerable time in the woods. Preached to the Indians both morning and afternoon. Ten days later, April 20th, which was his birthday, so he turned 25 on this day, he said, set apart this day for fasting and prayer, which he did for the rest of his life, which again was only four years. Uh, he, He set apart his birthday, among other days, but his birthday he was rock solid on, prayer and fasting all day long. To bow my soul, he says, this is why, to bow my soul before God for divine grace, spent day in the woods alone, and poured out my complaints to God. Uh, he says complaints in a good sen- in the sense that the psalmist uses the word complaints. He's speaking about holy complaints. Uh, he, he's, he's pouring out his holy complaints to God, the things that, that, that he needs, that he needs that only God can give. Number one on his list of holy complaints to God is his inward remaining sin, which we already just briefly touched on. Inward remaining sin. He was constantly cognizant of this and mourning over it. Secondly, the want of divine influence in his ministry. Thirdly, which is related to number two, the the lack of fruit from all of his labors. He was fervently laboring and yet nothing. There was no sign, no indication of any movement towards the gospel among the Indians. Uh, This was very, very depressing for Brainerd. It, 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 It reminds me, actually, if you remember... Uh, Johann Echolampadius in the Reformation in the 16th century and how Echolampadius was very depressed because he was ministering to the big cathedral uh, church full congregation and he was just bearing no fruit Uh, but he had a friend if you remember in William Farrell and Farrell just kept reminding him the word of God is all sufficient the word of God is all sufficient So, so Echolampadius had his friend but Brainerd didn't have anyone to sound off to, except God himself. There was just nobody there. By the end of the year 1743, he sent an account, and this would have been not in his private diary, but in his journal, and this is something he was obliged to do as being sent out uh, by the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, the Scottish Society, uh, and under the leadership of the New York Presbytery. Uh, He was bound to do this, and so in his journal he kept a second diary, a public diary, in which he recorded events that were more fit for public uh, eyes. And so he sent an account of this work to Pemberton at the end of the year. Uh, His discouragement was evident. No fruit after eight months. The scope of all my labors, he says, and this is the substance of his preaching, the scope of all my labors has been to lead the Indians into a thorough acquaintance with two things, primarily, the sinfulness and misery of the estate in which they were naturally in, and secondly, the fullness and freeness of that redemption that the Son of God wrought out by His obedience and sufferings. You see in such a brief sentence how pregnant that is with deep theology. The fullness, the freeness of that redemption the Son of God wrought out by His obedience and sufferings. That's just, that's packed full of systematic soteriology right there. It's tremendous. Well, by the end of the year, then he was moved by the presbytery, relocated uh, to the Forks of the Delaware. The Forks of the Delaware. This was just north of Bethlehem in Pennsylvania along the Delaware River. Uh, I've actually been there before. I used to live in Pennsylvania, and uh, I made a couple of special trips out to this place where Brainerd was. There's, there's a little stone, actually, where he had his hut 
uh, ostensibly, I don't know if it's the exact spot, but it's, it's got to be fairly close. But it's just in a private yard, in somebody's front yard. It's right there, and the person keeps it nice and, and manicured. You know, there's stones kind of around it, and there's a little thing that says, here, David Brainerd ministered to the Indians uh, at the Forks of the Delaware. So you can, you know, if you've got a long weekend or something, you can shoot up there and see it. So this is where he was, the Forks of the Delaware. And, and now he's starting to show signs of the tuberculosis that would kill him. He's, he says the journey that he made from Conomic to the Forks of the Delaware, he says, I rode several hours in the rain through the howling wilderness. I was so disordered in body that little but blood came from me. He was constantly coughing up blood at this point. In his private diary, and you see his, his, his burden in prayer now, It, it seems so evident to, to me, and, and of course I'm not the first, I'm not the only one, but it seems, just seems so evident that here was a young man who was, who was being deeply wrought on by the Spirit of God for the work of the ministry. And you see it in his burden and in, and in his prayers. And, and I'll just read an excerpt, and this is in your, your handout, at least part of it is. Uh, in his private diary, Saturday, July 21st, toward night, my burden respecting my work among the Indians began to increase much. I withdrew for prayer, hoping for strength from above. My soul was as much drawn out as ever I remember it to have been in my life. I was in such anguish and pleaded with so much importunity that when I rose from my knees, I felt extremely weak and overcome. I could scarcely walk straight. The sweat, and you, you remember, he's sick at the time too. I could scarcely walk straight. The sweat ran down my face and body. My soul pleaded long for his presence and assistance. What I passed through was remarkable and indeed inexpressible. All things here below vanished. There appeared to be nothing of any considerable importance to me but holiness of heart and life and the conversion of the heathen to God. I exceedingly longed that God would get to himself a name among the heathen. While I was asleep, I dreamed of these things. And when I waked, as I frequently did, the first thing I thought of was this great work of pleading. Well, the next day then, that was a Saturday night. He was preparing to preach the next morning. Uh, Lord's Day, July 22nd. When I awoke, I cried to God before I could get out of my bed. As soon as I was dressed, I withdrew into the woods to pour out my burdened soul to God. I had a strong hope that God would bow the heavens and come down and do some marvelous work among the heathen. You see how he's compelled. This isn't, it's my duty. But he's, 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 inwardly there's a force compelling him into this prayer and it's called the burden of the Lord. That's exactly what it is. And ministers are blessed when they are burdened by the Lord in this way. It's, it's a sign of success in the gospel ministry. The timing is God's, as it was in this case, because his immediate hopes were disappointed. There was no visible fruit born at the forks of the Delaware after he had been there another year. Just like Conomy. So two places, Conomy, forks of the Delaware. No visible success whatsoever, but he's pouring out his soul in agonizing prayer. Well, the third and final place that he was assigned to by the Presbytery was Cross Weeksung. Cross Weeksung uh, is in New Jersey, just outside, just a little bit south uh, of, of Trenton, south and east of present-day Trenton. 
He came here to a tribe of Indians in June 1745. June 1745. And now his prayers began to be answered. Cross weeks and very different aspect than the, the former two places. And he reported all of this to Pemberton and the others in, uh, in his public journal, which he titled at this phase of his ministry, The Rise and Progress of a Remarkable Work of Grace. The Rise and Progress of a Remarkable Work of Grace. June 19th, he says, I preached with immediate effect. So this is, the very, this is within days of, of, of arriving at Cross Weeksome. Preached with immediate effect. There was solemn attention among my hearers. Three days later, the power of God attended the word. Several began to be brought under great concern for their souls. August 6th, divine truths attended with a surprising influence. There's that word that Edwards liked so much. Faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. Well, here it was. Divine truths, though, that's that's important. Uh, Brainerd, as well as these other men that we've looked at, are always emphasizing the substance of what they're preaching. Uh, the manner is very different. The manner that Tennant and Whitfield preached compared to the way that Edwards preached, if you recall the great contrast there. Very different uh, presentation. But the substance, this is what they were so jealous about. These are the, the, the doctrines of the gospel, the doctrines of grace. These were the divine truths that he reported that he was emphasizing. Number one, the being and perfections of God and the obligations of all mankind to love and to honor Him. Not one of you Indians accepted. You're all under obligation because God is your Creator. And then secondly, their deplorable state by nature coupled with their inability to deliver themselves. So this is, this is just solid meat. And then he emphasizes this. He says, I've been favored with uncommon assistance especially in preaching Christ crucified. Just like the Apostle Paul. In preaching Christ crucified and making Him the center and mark of all. So yes, he speaks about their obligation to God. He speaks about their, their misery and their inability. He speaks about the divine perfections. But the center and mark of all that everything is coming towards is the sufficiency, the all-sufficiency of Christ crucified and exalted. And so he says, they all, as they listened, as one seemed to be in agony of soul to obtain Christ. Well, by the end of the month, so now this is two months that he's been here. Uh, 25 of the Indians were baptized and the number was increasing very rapidly. This continued all through the fall and the winter of 1745. He says, how did their hearts seem to bow under the weight of divine truths? None can frame a just idea of the appearance of our assembly at this time. Uh, just to give one instance, that Christmas, 1745, he preached from John chapter 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said th- that the sermon was accompanied with power, a silent but deep and piercing influence was upon them. Well, he preached the sermon, everything was silent, and he went to his little hut and, and withdrew. And he said, as soon as I came, they began coming in one after another into the tent, uh, with tears in their eyes, to know what they should do to be saved. The Spirit so set home to their hearts what I spoke, that the house was soon filled with cries and groans. They're all crowding in to his little hut, crying and groaning. They were almost universally seized with concern about their souls. It was a season of great power, 
It seemed as if God had bowed the heavens and come down. Well, all this while, the tuberculosis was, was setting in deeper. Uh, again, it was like that text that we read that, that, that Paul said to the Corinthians, death works in me, but life in you. A very, very similar situation. Circumstances different. But the principle that was at work was very similar. He was often now preaching from his bed. He would actually stay in his hut and the Indians would come as they did that one day after the sermon and would listen to him preach as he just leaned, leaned towards them from bed. He didn't have the strength to get up. By the year's end, he couldn't labor anymore. And uh, after he judged that he had sufficient strength, he left and he made his way to the home of Jonathan Dickinson in Elizabeth, New Jersey to try to recuperate there. He, of course, didn't know that... that he didn't have that long to live. I mean, he could have suspected it, uh, but he was going to recuperate, to get out of, of the elements and so forth, to stop preaching, and to try to recuperate and recover. So he was at Dickinson's home now. Now Dickinson, and here we're going to just change gears very quickly, uh, was making final plans for the founding of the first Presbyterian College. Yale had been founded in 1701. Before that, Harvard had been founded in 1636. They were both congregational Universities. There was no Presbyterian college in America. Uh, it's one of the arguments that the old side had. The difficulty that the new siders had was that uh, you, you had to be educated in Europe as a Presbyterian uh, and then come over to America. Uh, there was no place in America. Well, that was about to change. Dickinson, as I said, was, was, was heading up this enterprise. Dickinson and Burr, both. Uh, the, the founding of Princeton can be traced directly back to Brainerd's expulsion from Yale. That was kind of the spur that got them really working quickly. Burr himself said, if it had not been for the treatment received by Mr. Brainerd at Yale, New Jersey College would never have been erected. So there was Brainerd's expulsion. But then there was also William Tennant Sr. in the Log College, which was, which was a sense, in a sense the germ of the College of New Jersey. You remember Whitfield's observation about William Tennant. Uh, he said, he and his sons are secretly despised by the generality of the synod. So the, the only synod, the, the whole Presbyterian church, were looking at those log college graduates and William Tennant and, and kind of looking their noses down at him, saying this is insufficient, that education is insufficient for the ministry. And uh, that was the ostensible reason they gave, was that the... the, the the academic quality wasn't up to par, which may or may not have been true. Uh, but the important point was that the real reason was that they were, they were new siders. They were pro-revival. And uh, the, the, the synod did not like that. The majority in the synod, because Dickinson and all these other men were part of that synod. Well, the synod at this time passed an examining act. That's what it was called, an examining act. It stated that no candidate for the ministry without a university degree was to be licensed until successfully examined by the synod. So they didn't automatically bar if you didn't have it, but you had to come through the examination of the synod. They had to approve. Well, the act was specifically directed against the law college graduates and the New Brunswick Presbytery. As I said, the, 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 the real reason was because of their new side uh, relations. The Log College men, however, says Archibald Alexander, and he's the author of this book here that I strongly recommend. I've done it already, The Log College, 
It's a wonderful book written in the 19th century by Archibald Alexander. The Law College men, says Alexander in here, were friends and promoters of the revivals of religion, which their censurers bitterly opposed. But they were men of sound orthodoxy, evangelical spirit, glowing zeal, and in labors very abundant. They had the teaching of the Holy Spirit, and without the advantages that the others enjoyed, they became the burning and the shining lights of America. Well, in the synod meeting in which this examination, examining act was passed, Tennant and Blair, who, who were there, strongly resisted, said, no, this is, this is contrary. Uh, it's an intrusion into the rights of presbyteries, which up to this time had always possessed the power, a fundamental power of ordaining ministry, uh, ministers to the gospel. It was the presbytery, it wasn't the synod that had that right. That's where the right was lodged. And now there was an innovation, you might call it, that the synod was trying to say, no, we're taking that right from the presbytery and lodging it in the larger body so that without our permission, there's no ministers. Well, Blair and Tennant were, were strong-hearted men. They went back in their own presbytery, in the New Brunswick Presbytery, in the next meeting, they promptly ordained the next graduate from the Log College in an open act of defiance. John Rowland was his name. They ordained him without any examination of the synod. So they took matters into their own hand because they considered that their fundamental right. Alexander says, we don't justify the irregular and insubordinate acts of these men, but then he, he can't help himself because he's glowing with admiration for, for the influence of these men in the Presbyterian Church of America. He says, Gilbert Tennant and Samuel Blair were men of invincible firmness, a firmness bordering on obstinacy. They were the leaders in this warfare. They saw a great harvest before them, and that was true. And the Lord seemed to attend their labors everywhere with a blessing, and that was true. They felt, as did the apostles and the first reformers, that they were called to go everywhere preaching the gospel. I cannot express how much the Presbyterian Church in these United States is indebted to the labors of this very core. He's talking about the Log College men, who studied successfully the sacred oracles in the Log College, or more probably under the beautiful groves which shaded the banks of the Neshemini. There they studied, there they prayed, and there they were taught of God. Well, that's what Alexander, we, we, we see Alexander's opinion, and I, I find it very attractive myself. The upshot of all of this was that the New York Presbytery was expelled from the Synod because of their, their hasty action, just put right out of the Synod. So now the men of the New York Presbytery, the, Pro, the, the, the moderates, I almost said Protestants, uh, Pemberton, Dickinson, and Burr were the leaders among these. Uh, they rallied to their expelled brothers. They came to the side of the, of, of the New Brunswick Presbytery, and with them, the New York Presbytery, the New Brunswick Presbytery, they joined forces and formed a new synod. Well, this was the first schism in the Presbyterian Church in America. They formed a new synod. It was called the New York Synod. So you have the Presbyterian Synod and the New York Synod. Now, out of this womb of the New York Synod, the College of New Jersey was born. That is Princeton. Dickinson and Burr, as I said, led the enterprise. The first class, 10 students, it was just 10 boys, met in Dickinson's own home in May 1747. May 1747. Well, you remember, now we just come back and close with Brainerd very quickly. Brainerd had been at Dickinson's home when all of this was going on. And just a few days before 
That first class of 10 boys met in Dickinson's parlor. Brainerd had, had left. He had recuperated enough, and he headed up to Northampton in Massachusetts to go to the Edwards' home. This is where he was going to die. So he made the trip to Northampton, barely arrived on May 28th, was given a room upstairs, and it was at this time that he wrote this letter to his brother Israel that's just in a small excerpt of in the bottom of your handout. By July, it was clear that his condition was hopeless. He wasn't going to recover. The doctor, who was continually examining him, uh, wrote this in his description. The breaking of ulcers in his lungs causing a great effusion of blood with fits of violent coughing and fever. Brainerd would sometimes in his private diary write just how inexpressible the pain was, how he, he felt like he was, suff- he was hiccuping violently and suffocating at the same time, and he couldn't get breath, and just blood was coming out. September 10th, so we're just September or October, we're a month away from his death now. Though I was in extremity, I felt willing to glorify God in that state as long as he pleased. The grave appeared really sweet. I longed to lodge my weary bones in it. But oh, that God might be glorified. This was the burden of all my cry, to please Him forever. This my soul panted after, and even now pants while I write. Lord, let Thy kingdom come. I longed for a spirit of preaching, to descend and to rest upon ministers, that they might address the consciences of men with closeness and power. I longed for the spirit to be poured out from on high. Two weeks later, I was in the greatest distress that I ever endured. I longed for the finishing moment. When shall I come? To God my exceeding joy. And when I go, oh, how will God's dear church on earth be upon my mind? What a churchman. October 2nd, this was his last entry. My soul was sweetly set on God. Oh, that his kingdom might come and that all might love and glorify him for what he is in himself. That was a trademark phrase of Edwards and and, uh, Brainerd. For what he is in himself. And that the blessed Redeemer might see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. A week later, uh, October 9th, Friday, he died at 6 in the morning before the sun was quite risen. Uh, 29 years old. Edwards preached the funeral sermon. His grave is in Northampton. You can go there too as long as you're going to... to, um, What was that other site I was saying you should go to? Oh, Brainerd. Yes, that's right. Uh, Edwards received all of Brainerd's papers and he began to collate them. He set aside his major works that he was working on writing because he he just said to himself and others, this has to be given to the world. Here's, Here's a living example of piety in a man in the work of the gospel. And so it was published a work later. Uh, the diary and journal of David Brainerd became the fountainhead, really, of Christian missions in the modern era all over the world. Well, we are totally out of time. Uh, I've used up more time than I should have, so uh, let's close in prayer. Father, as always, we thank you for the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ and how even now, our Lord Jesus, you are working in this world until that final day when the last of your elect will be effectually called. Continue in your work and minister to us. Help us to have fellowship with you in this coming hour as you call us to yourself. Amen.